Welcome to Fresh Off the Vine. Today, my guest is Dr. Mitesh Katari. He is the partner at Capital Women's Care. He's a physician who successfully built his practice from a solo practice, went from being solo to small, to medium size, to being a regional practice. He's very active in his community and nonprofit boards. And last year, donated a building to the local community free clinic. So today, I'm super excited to have with us Dr. Mitesh Katari. Welcome, Mitesh. Thank you, Karen. So you know that this year I've been on this kick talking about vision. And so you were one of the first people that came to mind when I was thinking about successfully executing on vision. And like I just alluded to, you're someone that took a practice from you know, being a solo practitioner and growing it step by step over time. Is that something that was part of your vision? Yeah, you know, when I was young, my parents moved here from India and never really achieved a great level of financial success. But I always felt like I learned the right values and qualities from my parents. They gave me the greatest gifts I have. But my mother died at age 58 and was sick most of the time after age 40 when I was young in my formative years. My dad had a neurofatal heart attack at 47 and again at 55. Thankfully, my father is still alive. But those things taught me that life isn't forever and that I knew from a very young age, whatever I did, I didn't want to have to work past age 50 because I didn't know if you know, my health would be in great shape based on my family history. And I didn't want to leave my family, which was very important to me, in a position where they would struggle if something happened to me. And most health issues, like my father's, were sudden. They were unexpected. And you never know when it's going to happen. And so my goal, really, from a very early age was to be able to retire at 55. You know, in medicine, you don't really finish your training to make any kind of decent living till you're 30. So that's a very little bit of time, a couple of decades at most, to put myself in a really good financial position. And so... I had to plan, I think, my future at a very young age. How do you achieve the ability to either retire early or if something were to happen, you leave your family you know, financially secure with about 20 years to do it? So yeah, I had to have vision and, and stay focused from day one. And how did you do that? Oh gosh, you know, it's so hard. For most of us, we don't know how much we're going to make in life. You know, I think we don't know what our starting salary is going to be sometimes, and we certainly don't know what our future holds. And so at age 30, I did know one thing. I bought a home, and it was a 30-year mortgage. And I had the option of a 20-year mortgage and a 15-year mortgage. And I thought to myself, okay, look, I'm 30 years old. I'm going to own this house outright at 60. But my goal was to retire at 55, so I knew I had to make advance payments on my home if I could. Mm -hmm. So that immediately required me to live beneath my means. I had to take all of my expenses and make sure they were downsized such that I can make additional payments to have my house paid off in time. You know, and then when I, you know, saw an improvement in my business and revenue was increased, instead of taking that revenue that was increased and buying a car or, you know, spending it on a vacation, I said, well, I'm going to take that increased revenue and pay down my house. And we just had this philosophy, my wife and I, of living, you know, not bare bones, but certainly beneath what we could afford so that we could take the excess and invest it. In the beginning, it was in our home. It was paying down debts, which we had tremendous amounts of. I had medical school debt, tuition debt, and then I started my own business and took on quite a bit of debt to do that and the mortgage when I bought my home. So we had nothing to our name and a lot of debt. So we worked diligently to pay off the debt. But once the debt was paid off in a few years, we realized, wow, you know, what are we going to do with all that extra money? And certainly one of the options would have been to finally reward ourselves with a nice big house or a nice car or vacations. But we had young kids and that was hard to do. And so we made the conscious decision to take that excess money and invest it. I think the house was working out pretty good. So it was pretty easy for me to understand 
that I could buy rental properties and things like that. And as a physician, you don't have time to start a side business, but you certainly have time to maybe own a house and rent it out. Every now and then a tenant calls you and says, my hot water heater broke and you send a plumber. It wasn't too hard. Okay. And it was something I could do feasibly and still be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of stumbled into it. It was never part of my plan. And the one thing about residential or real estate in general is you only need to come up with 20% down. You don't have to have the money for the whole thing. And so, you know, if I had a little extra capital, I could say, well, how much was this 20% of? And I knew what I could afford. It was pretty easy to do the math. And so for me, you know, consistently investing in a way that would get me to where I wanted when I was 55 was always my plan. So at age 35, I knew it had to be a 20-year mortgage. At age 40, I knew it had to be a 15-year mortgage because my plan was always consistent. At 55, this stuff has to be paid off so I can use that revenue to live off of if I choose to retire or if something were to happen to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that vision is what it's guided almost every financial decision I've made in the last 20 years. I mean, that's really remarkable. There aren't too many people, first of all, a lot of people aren't even really sure what their vision is or they don't pause to make time for vision. But you not only developed a vision you actually executed on it you know being a teenager and having a mother pass away at a very young age and having a father who you know has a near fatal event and is out of work it just makes you just realize how those decisions are important because you know when you have to literally sleep in in your bedroom at night as a teenager in high school and not know what's going to happen you know whether you'll be able to still keep that house or move somewhere else. It's really hard. And so having that kind of impact is what would made me have my vision at a very young age. I felt like it was a necessity. And I do see a lot of people out there that just are winging it. You know, they don't have a long-term plan. And I just don't understand. And you see about people going bankrupt and, you know, all these sort of things. And I always say, do they have a plan? Right. Because I think if you have a plan, you're less likely to have you know, catastrophic event happened to you. This is what I think is fascinating kind of as a side note is when you've had adversity in your life, that it really changes your perspective. And, you know, I had a similar experience where I lost my dad. He was 40 years old. I was 15. He died unexpectedly in a car accident. And I didn't know if my mom could provide for us. I was afraid we were going to be destitute. Like mm-hmm. I, I was had a real fear that we were going to be on the streets. And I had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. And so that, you can bet, that led a fire under me to say, this is never going to happen to my family or to anyone that I care yeah. about. I've learned one thing. Bad things happen to good people. And it seems like they happen more to good people than bad people. So if I count myself as a good person, I'm, I've got to be prepared for the bad. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. yeah, and you know, life is full of ups and downs. I'm not saying I didn't have any downs, but... You know, I think having a vision and staying focused on it was something that was, it gave me confidence going through life. You know? Well, the other thing that you've shared with me before is that your parents were relatively poor, right? Your mom didn't speak much English. You know, it's a typical story. My, you know, my parents moved here when they were in their early 20s with 20 bucks in their pocket sort of thing, as a lot of immigrants did. And they had to pull themselves up and they had to work hard. My dad was college educated, but no one ever, ever heard of the college that he went to in India. So who's going to get the civil engineering job? The one that graduated from a U.S. college or one from a college you never heard of? Mm-hmm. And I think that in the end, he was always not able to get the good jobs and was never really able to earn a good income. Mm-hmm. So I grew up poor. And I tell my children all the time, you know, sometimes being poor, not having things makes you hungry. And, Absolutely. And, and people, children of wealthy people don't have that hunger. Right. They never knew what that felt like. And I think that, you know, that's something that I, you look back and you say, well, it wasn't fun being poor. It wasn't fun knowing that everybody in the room had more money than you and nicer right. clothes than you and nicer vacations and bigger homes. But the hunger that came from that is in a weird way a really great gift. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, it's your kids are in a fortunate position, right? That they're not suffering. They haven't lost one of their parents. They're not lacking for anything. Yeah, um, and I tell them all the time that I curse them with that. 
<laughs> that curse will live with them for life. Right. Well, <laughs> but you're also diligent about kind of putting in these little safeguards to help teach them about money and the value of money. And I know a couple of them are really, <laughs> really watch their pennies, don't mm-hmm. they? Well, I did teach them from a very young age. We started giving them an allowance at a very young age. All they had to do is behave themselves and do some minor chores and they got $10 a week which is $500 a year. That's a lot of money. Right, so it's $500 a year, but that's how much my wife and I figured we spend on them on trinkets and things that that really they don't need. And so this way I can say whenever you want that football or that ball cap or something like that, well, it's coming out of your allowance money. If you've spent it, then you don't get to have that. So it made them get in the mindset of budgeting at a very early age. And also it got them to maybe not do the bad things around the house. And, you know, when they did do something bad, whatever it was, you know, call a name or do something we didn't like. Of that $10, they lost a dollar every incident. Uh-huh. Mom and dad had the right to say, okay, you just lost $1. Okay. And so there's an immediate reaction. Got it. And if, when we pay out on Sunday, I'm sorry, you only got $7 and your sister got 10 because she didn't misbehave this week. And did you actually pay out in cash, something like tangible or was it a, did you just keep a record? I think the best way to do it is to hand them the cash mm-hmm. because it's, they can feel it. And for kids, and when that's they, really important. That, and when they spend it, they can feel that too. Yes. And I think that that was very meaningful. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100%. And then we encourage savings. If you took the money and you put it in your college savings account, we doubled it. And the college savings wasn't for tuition or room and board. It was for your spending money. Mm -hmm. And my daughter now has just finished her first year in college, and she's been using that money for her fun money. What's nice about that for me now is I pay for tuition and board, but I don't pay for anything else. So if she wants to go out to eat or she wants to go to the movies or she, you know, anything like that, that comes out of the money she's been saving from age five. Right. And she's so thankful to have that money now, but I'm also thankful that I don't have to fund all those things. And she doesn't have to ask me for permission if she wants to buy clothes or do things because she has a set amount of money that she knows she can count on. Awesome. And so she's seeing the freedom from that. Again, I'm hoping in adult life, that'll be part of that lesson is you have to save along the way. It does add up. And part of the way we took that money along with their birthday money and Christmas money, and we put it into a brokerage account and we let them pick their stocks. Mm-hmm. So she actually knew about Chipotle way before I did. <laughs> and she bought it. You know, and when we sold it, it was 10 times what she bought it for. And so she learned that lesson. And when she gets a dividend from Nike and she says, what's that daddy? And I say, well, that's your share of the profits because you own part of the company. And it's a really wonderful way for them to learn. And also when they pick stocks that don't do so well, right? it's like, well, that, you know, you invested in that company, but it didn't do so well. And so now you've lost money on that. And I think that that's not something that I learned until I was an adult. It's easy to make mistakes when you're learning things late in life. Yeah. I, I think I'm hoping my, my children have at least a little bit of knowledge about how the financial world works, because even as a child, we look at their brokerage statements every month. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. And I think it's important to make mistakes early and to give kids a chance to, whether it's spending too much on a piece of sports equipment or picking a stock that ends up being a bummer. You know, there's a lot of value in making those mistakes. You'd rather do it on a $2,000 basis or a $200 basis even than on a much larger scale as an adult. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I also, you know, one of the things I love about your vision is that you're so charitable. You're charitable with your time, with your energy, and also you know, financially. I think a great example of that is last year, you donated an entire building to the local mental health clinic. Has charitable giving also been part of your vision? This goes back to the greatest gift my parents gave me was was good values. My dad didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't lie. And he really promoted good values is the greatest gift I think I ever received from my family. And one of the things my dad taught me when he was young is you know, we didn't have much money and he had to constantly say no to me to a new pair of shoes or clothes. But then I saw him giving money away to charities. And I said, dad, 
you told me I couldn't have that thing last week, but now you're giving this money away. I thought we didn't have the money for it. And he always said, no matter how much you have, you can afford to give away 10%. You know, he said, if you make $30,000 a year, you can afford to give away three. It won't affect your life tremendously. And if you make 300000 that means you can give away thirty. And if you make $3 million, that means you can give away 300000 It really should not affect your lifestyle very much. After taxes, is a single-digit item on your balance sheet. When, you know, that's something I always grew up with. My father, who didn't have much money and didn't live very well at all and never owned a new car and wore the same coat for over 10 years and patched it when there was a hole, but still had the money to give away to charity, then how can I possibly feel good about living the good life without giving back to those that have less? Right. So that's something that we've always made important. And when I first started my career in Hagerstown, Maryland at age 30 in 1999, I knew I didn't have the money. I had young children. I had a lot of debt. And, you know, it was really important for me to pay that off and achieve financial security for my family. So when I was young, I made it a point to give back with my time. And so I was on, at any one time, no less than five or six nonprofit boards. Oh, wow. And I met a lot of great people and I learned a lot about business from them because they're oftentimes business people that are on those boards or bankers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I made a lot of connections. So in a way, they say, if you give, it always comes back tenfold. And I certainly feel like that was a big part of my success. Mm-hmm. Meeting those people, learning from those people how to make decisions. Being able to call some of them and saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing this or that. What do you think about it? Learning from some of the greats. It's been a great gift to me. But I'll be honest, it starts from giving. You give and it comes back tenfold. It doesn't always have to be in money. It can be in values. It can be in friendships. It can be in advice. For me, it's been all of those things. I don't think I would have achieved the great success I achieved without the connections and the advice and the lessons I've learned from the nonprofit world. Right. Yeah, that's remarkable. I love that you started that, you know, at the onset, because a lot of people, their mindset is, I don't have the time, or I don't have the money. It's a, always coming from that place of, I can't, I can't, I can't, or lack, right? Yeah. So it, again, it's part of the value set that I grew up with, and I credit my father in particular on that one, but wouldn't have it any other way, and I strongly recommend giving back, whether that's money if you have it, whether that's time. But I do believe my dad said, no matter how much you have, you should be able to give away 10%. Right. And it doesn't matter if it's small or big. It's all meaningful. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it's great what you've been doing. And I mean, you're still super active on, you know, in community boards, on bank board. You know, I'm on a board where you were a past president, right? Still active in that one as well. What are you most passionate about these days? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'm 50 years old and my goal was to be able to retire or work because I wanted to work, not because I had to work by age 55. I'm pleased to tell you that I feel as though I've achieved that goal at this point and I don't have to work, but I do work because I love what I do. But it does feel better to work because you want to, not because uh, you have to. Right. It also feels better to have that financial security that if something were to happen to me today, my children and my wife are well taken care of. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I've given them the gifts of the right values that my parents gave me and hope that I left the world a little bit better place because I was in it. But what's my passion now? You know, it continues to be the same thing. It, you know, it's funny. I talk to so many people that are retired. And, you know, if you didn't have a passion, then gosh, what do you do in retirement? Right. So I think for the most part, most people end up doing the same things they did when they worked. Right. You know, so my passion is my children, my wife. My passion is my business still. I'm still in it. I still want to grow it. I still want to make it great. I'm proud of the things I'm involved with. And, you know, I would hate for a patient to come to my practice and say they had a bad experience. But I do know that the only way that I'm going to try to prevent that is to be involved and to continue to work to make it the best place it can be. And if you work hard and you provide great customer service and a quality product, I believe that the business will continue to grow and thrive. Mm -hmm. And it'll be the proud business that I I want to be proud of it. My patients are my waitress at the restaurants. They're my teller at the bank. 
They're my colleagues. They're my patients. I see them everywhere I go. And I would hate for them to look at me and turn the other way because they didn't have anything good to say about the service that we provided. So I have personal pride in that. And that's so my business is my passion. But I will tell you, when I was young and I was had to work really hard and I was on call 24-7, 365, I didn't see my kids as much as I wanted. Sure. And my 19-year-old daughter will tell you that she doesn't remember me in her life very much in the first 10 years. Right. Life. And that hurts me. But I did know that, and she knew that it was for a good reason. It was to give that family the stability that they've been able to enjoy. So the bottom line is I want to make sure that I'm as much part of my family as I can be. And that's something that security gives you. The security gives you the ability to say, okay, I can take a little bit more time off if I need to, or if there's something going on tonight, I don't have to necessarily miss it for work anymore. Yeah. I mean, from my point of view, it seems like you have a really nice balance, something that a lot of people would like to have in their lives, especially other physicians that maybe feel like they're slaves to the schedule and just don't have the time. It took a long time to build that. You know, I think that I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Probably at times I worked harder than I should have, like not being home as much. I could have probably been successful without working that way. I could have partnered with other good doctors sooner than I did. But some of the best decisions I've made were things like partnering with my partners. We together grow the business faster than we could have individually by ourselves. And these are things I didn't know. You know I wasn't a student of business when I was in school. I didn't know these right. things. You learn along the way. And if you have to go back and look at all the decisions you made, you're definitely going to find mistakes. That's what's interesting, though, because, I mean, that's what a lot of physicians say. Look, I went to medical school, right? I didn't go to business school. You hear that all the time. And I'm sure when you talk to your colleagues, it comes up. But when I look at, you know, your path and how your career has unfolded, you have definitely had a very distinct entrepreneurial knack that, I don't know, maybe I thought before it was naturally, maybe it is a combination of natural and just all this kind of research that you just described and all this great, you know, knowledge that you uncovered through your networking connections. But either way, you still thought it out, right? It's not like it was just fell in your lap. I mean, you really made an effort to seek it out. I'm not a big believer in luck. I think you make your own luck. It's easy for people to look at others and say, man, they're lucky. And that brings me back to one of the values my dad always taught me again. And that is, don't look at people that have more than you. Always seek out the people that have less than you. Be thankful for where you are. And I find that we always think the grass is greener on the other side. But when you really look into it, it almost never is. So I think part of my philosophy in life is just be happy with what you have. Right. And so, yeah, as far as entrepreneurial spirit's concerned, I'm not sure how much of it's nature and how much of it's nurture. I do know that I believe the person who's lucky is the one that's constantly looking, someone who's optimistic and is looking for the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. If you're not looking, it's not going to come to you. Right. It isn't luck. You know, we're talking about values. I try to talk to my kids about trade-offs, right? So if something looks like the grass is greener, like you were just saying, it was a long, hard road to get to the point where you are now, where you have this freedom and time and balance in your schedule. But what were all the trade-offs that you had to make there? Well, number one, you took a lot of risk along the way, right? Which is what entrepreneurs do. And so it might be easy to be on the outside going, oh man, Matesh, you know, did this or did that and fell into this and you know, his business went from small to large and overnight. And when we really know, that's not quite how it happened. Now, there's a lot of work behind it and a lot of planning, and a lot of good decisions. I really, truly believe that good decisions are additive in such an exponential way. But all you need is a few bad decisions in there to take it all down. And so how do you continue to make good decisions over and over and over again? And I think that takes a lot of thoughtfulness, planning, asking for advice, and hard work. Yeah. You know, you have to do homework. Right. Yeah. And, you know, asking for advice, that's a great point. I'm really glad you bring that up because that's something that physicians kind of have a reputation for not wanting to do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think that I was aware that, you know, physicians, when I read the book, 
a millionaire next door back, I don't know, gosh, I was in high school probably. Mm-hmm. It's a chapter on physicians about how they're the classic high income, low net worth individuals. And I was determined not to be that person. But, you know, the book opened my eyes. You know, if you see a physician driving a fancy, expensive car, well, that money's that's not in his bank account now. If they're having a big home, all the money they're paying for that and furnishing and, and so forth, it's not in their bank account anymore. So even if they look wealthy, they're not. You can't have a 35-year-old guy who just, you know, graduated from school or training at age 30, having a big house and an expensive car and expensive clothes and expensive vacations and assume that they're wealthy. There's almost no chance they're wealthy. And, and so the reality, unless they inherited it, they're actually broke. And I think that that's the fallacy. And it's easy to see why that happens to physicians. I think, you know, we live a life of delayed gratification. Sure. You know, when we're in high school, we're the best of the best and we go to college. And you go to college and you're the best of the best and you go to med school. And you go to med school, you're the best of the best and you go on to residency for a few years. We're constantly, we're seeing all our friends graduate from college and get married and have children and, you know, build their careers and get jobs while we're still stuck in training. So we feel like, you know, we kind of delayed our gratification for about 10 more years than everybody else. So when we get out and we get a high paying job, we start to blow it. We start to say, hey, now that I have this money, I am spending it on it myself. It is my because time, right? It is my time. And the unfortunate thing is that you never build wealth if you spend it. And once you get in the habit of spending it, it's hard to downsize your lifestyle. No question. No question. I mean, the physicians that I've talked to over the years that have gotten to a good place have really been able to avoid some of those traps early on and just had real discipline early on and continue to live like residents really for as long as possible. Yeah, living beneath your means is the key to long-term success. No matter how much you have, if you make $100 million a year and you can live like you make $20 million, you're still living a great life, but you're saving a lot of money. If you make $100,000 a year and you live like you make 30, you can be wealthy over the long haul. We won't get into it in this podcast, but I'm also a math geek. And, um, <laughs> and the power of compounding is something that cannot be underestimated. Time plus money is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Right. And I remember hearing the story of the kid that had 90 days in the summer to work. And he went to work for a shop and the shop owner said, how much would you like to get paid? And he said, just pay me a penny a day, uh, my first day, uh-huh. and then double me every single day. And the <laughs> shop owner said, what an idiot. I'll take you up on it. And if you do the math, by the end of 90 days, he's a multimillionaire. And so, you know, that's, that's the power of compounding. Uh, people don't understand math. And I think that's a big problem. You do have to understand math or have someone working for you that understands math. Right. I, my dad once told me, he said, you don't need to be an accountant. You just have to hire an accountant. You don't have to know the law. You just have to know a good attorney. Yes. You don't have to know everything. Ask for advice. Yes. They're definitely going to know better than you. I certainly would not think about trying to fix my own car or even changing my own oil <laughs> because I can go to a mechanic who's really good at it. It's yeah. going to do it for a fair price. And so the reality of it is, I think... I learned a long time ago, you can't be everything. Right. No, and that's so, I mean, it's kind of common sense, but it's also a lot of wisdom. And I, you know, in your field, it's really uncommon. I think physicians are, you know, used to being the smartest person in the room. They usually are the top five kids in their high school class, and they're usually top 10 percentile in college. And their friends who maybe didn't get the same grades they got are now all those things, they're attorneys, they're accountants, they're financial planners, and they're insurance salesmen, and they're real estate agents. And they say to themselves, I'm smarter than you. I right. can do this better Why than do you. I don't need to pay you. But they forget that, you know, the skill that those professions hone took years and years to hone, and you didn't have time to do that. You were honing a different skill yourself. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that you, we have to kind of get off that whole, we're smarter than everybody else. It's uh, really, self, it's not self-serving. It's, it's really hurtful. Well, if you try to manage your own money, it also takes a tremendous amount of time away from your business and from your family. Because if you do it right, it takes time. Mm -hmm. 
That's way. something you have to understand. Right. Well, and as you know, I mean, the investments are just a part of it. Then there's all the other planning that goes around it, you know, just constantly. I think of it as like turning over stones. Like what's the next piece of thin ice that might be around the corner? You know, have I turned over every stone to make sure that I'm as buttoned up as I possibly can be? That's hard to do when you're running a business and you have a family. And Gosh, I bought a bunch of residential townhomes and the tenants would call me when something was, you know, broken in the home and I'd have to fix it. Either go there, answer a call in the middle of the night or call a plumber or do whatever. And I had to do that. Well, that was fine when I had one, but then I, as I got more and more properties, it became a real hassle. I was collecting the rents. I was making deposits. I was paying mortgages. And I realized, you know, I felt like I had to do that. But then when I got someone to manage my properties and do all that for me for a fair price, mm -hmm. I just realized, oh my gosh, my life is so much better. Why <laughs> was I doing it that way for so long? And also, by the way, I have less turnover in my tenants because they take so much better care of them. Interesting. They're so much better at it. Right. You know, they have a 24-hour hotline. They have handymen on site. They can get to them faster than I can. So there's a definitely a value. And back. they don't feel bad calling them. Yes. They felt bad calling me. Right. Well, then they live in a home that they're less happy with. And so all around, everyone's better off in this scenario. Uh, that's a great and, and honestly, I think ultimately my investments are doing better because of it. Because, yeah, if you don't have turnover, the worst thing is when someone says, hey, I'm leaving, I'm moving somewhere else. And then you're empty for six months because you can't find a tenant. These guys can put people in those spaces much faster which means I have less vacancy and they pay for themselves that way. So I kind of feel like even though they're taking a fee, in the end, I'm really kind of doing probably better than I would have when I was doing it myself and it's no work at all now. Right. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, I think sometimes yeah, these are lessons you learn. Right. These are lessons you learn. And sometimes, yeah, back in the, when I was young, I thought I had to do it because I couldn't afford to pay the fee. Mm -hmm. But I know better now. I think that's a common misconception. I mean, it's a common just feeling that I can't afford to pay you know, it might be worthwhile speaking to someone and saying, well, why should I pay you this? Right. And they should have a darn good answer. Right. If you'll get me, I, you'll make more money because I guess I'll make mine, but you'll make more because of what I can do for you. Yes. Right. And if you don't hear that, then find someone else. Yeah. But, but the yeah. reality of it is it's worth giving people a chance. Yeah. I think you're right. I agree. Great. Well, I guess kind of wrapping up, I was thinking about your remarks earlier about your dad, about he didn't drink, he didn't smoke. And you know, this podcast is about... Sometimes about wine, <laughs> usually about money, but always about getting better with time. And I know you're less of a wine drinker and more of a bourbon drinker. Are you heading to Kentucky anytime soon to do any more bourbon tasting? <laughs> I don't have any plans for Kentucky. That was a wonderful trip seeing the bourbon places down there on the bourbon trail. No, I definitely plan a little bit more vacation. I enjoy a drink once in a while, but as a doctor, I will tell you, you know, everything in, in moderation. Uh, in moderation. Yeah, and I, it's not that I dislike wine. I just don't have the palate to really appreciate the finer points of wine, I think. <laughs> you just need to practice. <laughs> uh, I, In moderation. That sounds that sounds like a plan. Maybe that, that should be part of my next one. Maybe vision. that could be part of your next vision. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much, Karen. Thanks, Matesh, for joining us. Opinions expressed are those of Karen Coyne and not those of Raymond James Financial Services or Raymond James. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated. Karen Coyne Strategic Wealth Advisors located at 12920 Connemar Drive, Suite 202 in Hagerstown, Maryland, 21742. Phone 301-739-7002. Raymond James is not affiliated with Capital Women's Care. Any opinions expressed are those of Dr. Matesh Katari and not necessarily those of Raymond James.